Okay, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Kente Corner, your favorite casual Hoya basketball podcast. I'm Bobby Bancroft, and we have a full booth tonight. I'm joined by NY Hoya, Florida Hoya, and Nationwide Nolan. Guys, we are currently, obviously, on the pause. Georgetown hasn't played a game. They should have had a game tonight. They do not, but we are going to go into the Wayback Machine and transport everyone to today's date, which is January 26th. We're going to go to 2008, and we're going to bring you back to the West Virginia Coliseum in Morgantown, West Virginia. And why? What's up, man? What's going on? I got a fun fact for you. Do we want to? Do we want to go some current stuff first? We're going to go right to Morgantown. This is current. This is current. Okay. I want to know in this majestic season 2020 to 2021 who leads the big east in rebounding is it pickett it is jamarco pickett question number two who is number two in the big east in rebounding is it his teammate kudus wahab you are correct on both counts has this ever happened before for the hoyas I, I maybe maybe morning in Matumbo, but I I I doubt it. And Wahab is also number two in the conference in blocks per game. So uh, you you take the victories where you can find them, and that was a nice little surprise I noticed uh, on the little uh, scroll during one of the Big East games over the weekend. It helps. It's nice. And you know, I think Jalen Harris was at the top of assist before he ended up dealing with a family issue. So. You know, they've got some individual performances, Blair's up there. Um, so, guys, we got some game time today for two games in February. And while they're not very interesting, other than the Creighton game is a midweek game and it really ruins a post-game Kente corner, um, it's a 9 o'clock tip locally. But uh, I was surprised by this, and Florida, Nolan, you can jump in, that we're getting game times for for February games when – I assume that they're going to have to kind of redo their February schedule. Yeah, I, I would assume February is just going to be a mess. Uh, you probably won't be the last Big East team to shut down. I mean, Xavier, I don't know when they're set to resume, maybe this week. So it's, I think February pretty much across the board in college basketball is going to be just trying to patch things together. I think surpri- surprise is one word for it. I think indifference is another. And then, Val Ackerman was extended today. I think she's done a great job as Big East commissioner. There might be some indifference towards this news. The one thing I will add is that while the Big East has been great, she obviously took it over at a very difficult time. Georgetown by far, she's the fifth commissioner in Big East history. Georgetown by far has has, has its worst record when she's been in charge. Florida. Oh, I'm sorry. I was waiting for my cue to enter here, Bobby. Sorry, I sorry, sorry. Told- I was promised that my arrival would be heralded by the firing of a musket. Apparently that's not come yet. Later. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah, no, actually I saw, I saw uh, Val Ackerman had been extended too. I'm, one of my, my, my great pleasures, uh, great Twitter follows is, is uh, the No Escalators Twitter feed, the Yukon fans. Great week for them, by the way. Congrats on the, uh, the sad dog joggers, by the way. Um, yeah, I enjoy the occasional like reminder of UConn how much better they have it in the Big East than the AAC. I saw they tweeted something today about a uh, 
I think Tulsa was getting blown up by Temple at like two o'clock on a Tuesday and to remind yourself, yes, it's better to have like a doubleheader of your women's and men's team this weekend than to be playing at two on a Tuesday. So, yes. It is. Onward up prob- one day, one probably day we'll the, join the party. Yeah, pr- probably one of the few teams in the country that is, that is relishing uh, – this season, despite the presence of COVID, because of their graduation into uh, their old their old uh, Big East friend conference. I'm sure you guys have seen, well, NY hasn't seen, but I like to do the whole Georgetown as a soccer school bit, because both men and the women are very good, and the men just won the national championship last time they had a full season. Villanova basketball was mentioned in the press release. Georgetown men's soccer, those, those are the two programs that were mentioned in the press release that the Big East sent out about Val Ackerman. So it's crazy when you think that the new Big East formed after a Georgetown game, that was the announcement. And then you fast forward to 2021 and the only way Georgetown's getting in there. And I'm not trying to take away from men's soccer because they're incredible, but you know, it's the men's basketball program is the ship that kind of drives this whole thing. And it's just, it's just interesting that that's gotten to that point. Speaking, speaking speaking of ships, the our, our sailing team has historically been pretty good too. I don't know if there's Biggie sailing. Nolan, do you know? I don't know. <laughs> we definitely have a sailing team. Oh, good. No, you're right. I mean, they there there's a sailing team. Georgetown's kind of like the Ivy League in that they have like more sports than probably they know what to do with. But you are right. Whatever. I don't know how many teams are in Ken Palm sailing rankings. Georgetown is always near the top. Great strength of schedule. I mean, you gotta you gotta go out there and play teams if you want to be ranked. Okay, so the reason we're all here, Georgetown is off. Uh, they actually, you know, like I said, they would have played today. They haven't played since January 9th. I think we'll find out tomorrow if they're going to play this weekend. That's my guess because it'll be 14 days from when they first we we first heard that there was a COVID issue in the Tier One part of their program. Um, but I think that, you know, the Duke game we did last week was really fun. And not to be too harsh, Georgetown right now is kind of a retro brand, right? Like, that's kind of what the program is. So I think us doing these rewatchables, Hoya Rewind, whatever we're going to call it, it's kind of where you're at, right? So I don't feel, I feel like it's very timely. Let's remember some games. That's our brand right now. So on January 26, 2008, the number nine Guys, can you imagine number nine? The number nine ranked Georgetown Hoyas were 15 and two, five and one as they visited West Virginia in Bob Huggins' first season. I, you know, I felt like he was there forever, but obviously it started at some point. So they're playing a pretty good West Virginia team, 15 and four, four and two in the league. And the Mountaineers are on a 15 game home winning streak. Season expectations to that point, obviously, Georgetown was coming off a season where they made the first Final Four since 1985. They won their first Big East tournament, which is hard to imagine, since 1989. And their number five ranking was the highest preseason ranking they had had since Iverson's sophomore year, 95-96. Jeff Green was gone. But the additions, and again, everything is just so great. Like This is just such a great time to be. The additions were two local McDonald All-American guards. Five-star Austin Freeman, Chris Wright, who was kind of teetering in that five-star range, but I think ended as a four-star that's pretty much the big the big pluses and minuses as far as the roster goes. If you're listening, I assume you know that, but I just wanted to set the stage. Now I'll kick it to NY. Well, I, I think one of the first things that comes to mind is this was just a couple weeks after the the famous Roy Herbert hits a three to beat UConn game. 
And so we were, we, we were rolling. We were, I think, beyond, uh, beyond the point when we were missing Jeff Green. Uh, we were obviously sad that he didn't come back for his senior year, but we were ecstatic that Roy Hibbert had agreed to come back. And we had, as you just said, we had a ridiculously deep and talented team. We had, we had, um, we had everyone who returned from a final four team and we had Austin Freeman and, and Chris Wright. Uh, and we had guys who would go on to play uh, a lot more minutes this season than they did the, the, the previous year. Vernon Macklin is, is one of those guys. And I think one of the themes throughout the season, uh, because we had, you know, a very, very good team, but a team that would uh, often struggle to figure out its identity it was who's going to replace Jeff Green. And we all knew it was going to be a combination of guys, but our lineup situation was constantly in flux. And so one of the things, by the time we get to the West Virginia game, one of the things we know is that uh, we've, we've got some offense defense arrangements where, you know, you had the same guards you had the, during the final four run with Jonathan Wallace and, and Jesse Sapp and Austin Freeman in the guard small forward position but then you've got Jeremiah Rivers as a defensive stopper, and you've got Patrick Ewing Jr. Uh, in, in the games frequently for his defense, but more and more because of his excellent passing abilities, which uh, really blossomed in this West Virginia game. But you also have a lot of sort of confusion outside of Roy Hibbert down low. Exactly what role is Macklin capable of playing now that Jeff Green is gone? How refined are his skills in the Princeton sets? Uh, and, you know, sort of wither... Dewan Summers. If Dewan is not playing the three, if Dewan is moving over to the four because of the presence of Austin Freeman and the absence of Jeff Green, can Dewan thrive in more of a grinding role? So those are just a, a number of the themes that jumped out kind of in the run-up to this game for me. Nolan, were you surprised that Patrick Ewing Jr. didn't take over the starting lineup and it went to Austin Freeman, or do you think that kind of made sense? I think that made sense. You know, Austin, he – and one of the takeaways from this game was I thought Austin was actually pretty good defensively, which we know later on in his career that was not the case. And I think just the shooting and the playmaking he could add to that starting group. I think with Patrick Ewing Jr.'s – playing small forward or power forward with Dewan next to him. I think things just would have been a little bit muddled uh, spacing wise and everything. So it, to me, it made sense. And what was interesting back then, and it was a theme on Hoya talk at the time actually was, are they too small? And now you look back at that team and it's like, no, you can get away with playing Austin Freeman as your third guard. And Dewan is a power forward. No problem when you have a seven, two center. But I think it, I mean, like you guys just said, the depth of that team, the quality of the depth, that you could go eight deep and your eighth guy is Vernon Macklin, who's a McDonald's All-American caliber player. Um, they they were loaded that year for sure. Yeah, I, I actually, a lot of what Howie already talked about, I want to talk about and bring back up later on when we talk about the legacy of this game and, and what kind of team the 2008 team is. Roy's, Roy's role in this game and really this season is interesting, right? Like we, we were talking about the Duke game in the last episode. We noted that Hibbert didn't play a lot in that game, and it probably made sense that Jeff Green played the five for the balance of that game. And, you know, 
one of the things about this and, and, and their numbers, like, you know, like their Ken Palm numbers, this team had the fourth best offense, Georgetown offense in the Ken Palm era. Like it's not a bad offense at all, but it does feel like you know, Jeff Green and an extra Roy Hibbert, Greg Monroe in their own ways are like sort of perfect platonic ideals of a five in a Princeton offense even though Jeff was really playing the four. When you would go small with Jeff, you could do so many things, and Greg Monroe, as a true five, could pass, shoot, play down low. Roy could play down low, dominant offensive player down low when he could get the ball, dominant defensive player. doesn't present quite the same offensive threat. And it, it really, I, one of the teams I noticed in this game, it really felt that West Virginia did defend Roy pretty well throughout this game. He doesn't have a huge offensive impact, even though he has a double-double. And we turned the ball over a lot trying to feed him. And it feels like at times in this game, I was thinking, man, you know, this feels like a game, even though West Virginia has size where, like, if Jeff Green had been able to play the five with Ewing next to him, probably would have been a better lineup. Can I just I, – I think, I think you hit the nail on the head on the, on the question, who, you know, who is going to sort of play that point-forward role? You know, the most successful JT3 teams have always had that guy, whether it's Jeff Green or Greg Monroe or even, even Henry Sims, Otto Porter. We, we don't really have a guy like that on this team. And I think back in 2008, around the, around the time this game was, was played, the, the, the question was the one Bobby just got at. You, should it be Austin Freeman or should it be Patrick Ewing Jr.? And I think it was presented as sort of like, an offense defense sort of thing. Well, we need Austin Freeman's offense because he can, he can create more. Uh, he's a little bit more dynamic and with Ewing on the court, it might be too much size and too much defense and not enough, not enough offense. But I think what was lost in that conversation back then was Ewing was the closest thing we had to, to the person who could play that point forward role. Ewing was a hell of a passer. Ewing wasn't as good of a shooter as Jeff Green was, although he could hit from deep, but he, he could create and he could pass. Um, and, and as I guess we'll get to in this game, but it was Ewing who was creating a lot of the offense from the top of the key in a way that guys like Hibbert and, and even Dewan were, were never able to. Yeah. Um, there's, a, yeah. There's, a stat they, there's a stat they throw up at the beginning of this game or, or near the beginning of this game on the ESPN broadcast um, where they say apparently – in the last six times that these two teams had played, only once had a team scored over 70. And it was Georgetown scoring 71 in the matchup the previous year. Um, that's, a, that's probably a relevant point. That's not, that, not the part that these teams are prone to defensive struggles, and this is what this game turned out to be. But that, that game the year before in D.C. was really kind of not fugly, but it was definitely contentious. And I wonder if there was some spillover from that. Because if I recall, Georgetown won by about 15 or 20. This was the game where Pat, Pat Jr. And, and, and John Beeline got into it on the sidelines, and the game got really chippy, actually both in the, in the, on the court and in the crowd, too. I remember being at this game, and it was kind of a weird crowd vibe. I think it was a Monday nighter. Um, I wonder if there was any spillover from that. Just one thing, when I turned this on, it was it maybe just because this year where there are no fans, but it was startling how tense it just feels in Morgantown. We are on the road there. It is. I mean, it's. It, it it feels almost borderline as far as how. Uh, I don't know. Just the vibe you get when you go in there, and it seems to be a little bit extra when Georgetown is good and goes to play there. 
Yeah, and, and, and we're, we're going to talk about Bobby and I are both at this game. I will tell you, having watched the, the broadcast on YouTube again, I think the broadcast undersells the atmosphere there that night. It was very tense and very loud. I think it's the most intimidating place I've been. And maybe one one final game note uh, leading up to this game. Don't forget, Chris Wright was also injured. And so we had Austin Freeman. We didn't have Chris Wright. Chris Wright wouldn't return until the Big East tournament later that year. So, Do you think that was a good idea? <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell if that's a tongue-in-cheek question. I do think that was a good idea. You don't want him in the game when he's not healthy. But No, no. I, I, was, I, was, I was sabotaging this and going right to the Big East tournament. Um, <sighs> I mean that game against Villanova in the first the first round of the the quarters of the Big East tournament was majestic and You're right. Chris Wright on the court and wondering whether we could win the national championship on that you know I guess it was <laughs> Thursday afternoon was amazing. Um, before before we move on, do you want to talk about West Virginia's team? This was this was an interesting like this is kind of a this is an era of of West Virginia basketball I feel like around like this is just post Pitsnoggle um, and Deshaun Butler's on this team, but not really like the primary guy on the team yet. Um, but there's this sort of like this, this sort of Pitsnogglian guys on the team, right? You still have Joe Alexander's on this team, Alex Ruoff, Jamie Smalligan, sort of a big doofy white guy who happens to be able to shoot threes. Like there was definitely a type for West Virginia players, like in this very specific like year range around like the late 2000s. Like even as as we were transitioning from Beeline to Huggins, I totally forgot. Yeah, an interesting transition too, going from from Beeline to Huggins. uh, Just very different brands of basketball. Uh, One very focused on the use of the one three one and shooting threes, and uh, and and Huggins just uh, yeah the basketball equivalent of sort of ground and pound and and toughness in the paint. And I respect Huggins for trying to weave in elements of Beeline's offense in that first year or so after he was gone. And you would see, you know, Huggins try to continue with the one-three-one, while at the same time, you know, and then using using his personnel, I think, effectively, albeit uh, as as he was at the same time trying to blend in everything that he does best. So one more thing to set the tone coming up to this game as far as what had happened in the season so far while Georgetown didn't have a bad non-conference schedule when you go back and look at it on Ken Palm and all the numbers next to the teams like you know at the time oh you know you you know you manhandle Michigan at home that that sounds great it wasn't a very good Wolverines team um they did get the win at ODU I was also at that that was big because they had lost to them the year before and they had a they had a top five matchup um, with Derrick Rose down at Memphis. That was number two versus number five. That was the Hoyas' first loss of the year. They also ended up losing a game to Pittsburgh before this. So, like I said, they were they were fifteen and two, five and one coming into this. Um, jump into the first half, or we want to end up talking about how John and I were there. Well, let me let me let me hit some one more thing on players too here. Um, oh, okay. This was one of the years the Big East had this dumb stretch for a while where they would have like all Big East first teams with like ten guys on them. This is one of those years. So Joe Alexander was first team all Big East that year. Um, Roy Hibbert was unanimous first team all Big East. Um, they did actually like star who would be like unanimous. Does anybody remember who won Big East Player of the Year that year? 
This is a point of big frustration for Georgetown fans. It wasn't was it to Juan Blair, was it? Yeah, that was no, he was on the offense. Luke Heron, it was Heron Gody. It was Heron Gody. Yeah, it was Heron Gody. Are you kidding? No. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I well the the Joe Alexander thing was interesting because this oddly I don't know why if they mentioned it or not was the one game all year he did not start and he really did not do anything. And so in my mind, I thought, oh, maybe it was 09 that he really broke out and turned into a lottery pick. But it was this year. Was at the end of the year? Yeah, it didn't really happen for him really until almost March. And him being a lottery pick is still bizarre to me. And it kind of, I mean, it played out that way where he didn't last at all. But yeah, he was, you would not have guessed that was a lottery, the highest draft pick on the court that day. Yeah. Well, yeah. I encourage you, like, go back and look at the all Big East teams this year. It is a journey. It is an amazing, like, there's some amazing contrast between, like, really superstar Big East players and complete that guys. Um, it, it, it's a real trip. Yeah, Heron Gody was the player of the year that year. I'm, I, I, why, why do I think Mike Bray probably snuck a coach of the year in there, too? We used to always get on Mike Bray for that. He, he, usually, he usually did that when they had, they had a worse record, though. Yeah. So, I, I forget how, to what degree... Notre Dame exceeded or did not exceed expectations there. Right. They 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 exceeded behind the dynamic duo of Heron Gody and our favorite guard Kyle McElarney. Also a first teamer, by the way. Why wouldn't he be? There's ten guys on the team. I mean, Kentrell Gransbury was a first teamer that year. That would actually be a pretty fun game because I'm going to get a lot of these wrong, and I think I actually know some stuff. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was a journey. I'm, I'm sure there was some uh, some vote splitting going on there and some spreading going on here. I can see a lot of teams represented on the first team in particular. The only two teams that had guys on the first team were Connecticut and Notre Dame. And I'm pretty sure Connecticut didn't make the tournament that year. If they did, they got bounced in the first round. No, I think that was the year they lost to San Diego in the first round. Yeah, that or 09. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I think it was 08, actually. 09, they made the final four. They were a four. I remember that was one of the saving graces of the tournament. I think they lost... It was a it was a four thirteen matchup, but yeah, I guess it does make sense to do that stuff first. So when you look at West Virginia's, I know I did this at the end of the last podcast. So based on Wikipedia, John Flowers is still playing in France. Um, Alex Ruoff, who is the only person in this game that's ever been over to my house, he is a he's a cousin of one of my really good friends. So I actually went to a bunch of West Virginia games during that that uh, period. That didn't involve Georgetown. Um, Joe Alexander, who only was the eighth pick in that draft, which is just such a terrible pick. He played two seasons. He played 67 games, no starts, immediately bounced out of the league like he should have been. He's still playing in Israel. Um, Wikipedia says Deshaun Butler is still playing in Israel, but I'm pretty sure he's doing a podcast thing with Rob Douster. So I think his career might have just ended with the uh, pandemic. And then I think that's it for the current players. Uh, Joe Mazzula is an assistant for the Celtics, and Darius Nichols is an assistant at Florida. So that's kind of I where... mean, if Joe Alexander was playing in Israel, I wonder if he ever played against Chris Wright. I wonder if they reminisced about that game, that, that, that Patrick Ewing Jr. block, and whether it was a goaltend. So I can tell you, my buddy that's cousins with Alex Ruroff, I can't believe he didn't come when I tweeted at it. I can't believe he didn't come for that. Every time I tweet about this game, he always has a real big problem with it. I'm like, come on, man. Come on. Come on, man. Um, and I'm, if- I'm not 
I'm not surprised. Like there's certain games, like there are certain games and certain things about fan bases that bother them. And it, it seems very on brand. Like this specific game, even years later, like would really bother West Virginia fans. Even though I don't think we've beaten them since then. Um, like I, I'm not surprised it bothers them. Like I think until the end Once. of time, in, like in, in the NIT, that was it. Well, oh, they beat them right. later yeah. that season. Yeah. And, and right. oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. And in, in the yeah, you're right in the in the base tournament. So yeah, two twice. I'm 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 more off than usual. Yeah, just like I think I'm gonna like, I'm gonna imagine, hop off, guys. But I'll see you in a bit. All right. I imagine like in ten years we're gonna be on this podcast doing recaps of like the games that Mac McClung and James Akinjo are having right now. Like I'm not surprised this bothers West Virginia fans twelve years later. <laughs> Um, and as for the NBA players on Georgetown, we all know that Dewan Summers. Oh, uh, actually, I'm, let me let me back up. Wikipedia, like I said, this is the best we kind of have for this these kind of overseas stuff. It says he's still playing in Japan, but I don't think he is. If that makes sense. Um, yeah. As far as everyone else is out of the league, we, we all know Summers was drafted, Hibbert was drafted, Macklin was drafted, but he was not. Dra- actually, Ewing was drafted as well. Um, Macklin was drafted after he went to Florida. So do we want to jump right into the first half and just kind of talk about what we saw? Because we all watched it. We had a big homework assignment for Casual Hoya. (laughs) One more more question. Actually, I want to ask Nolan. So Nolan, in the sort of like in this like JT post JT3 or like JT3 and and, and Ewing era, which Mm. like which team? Like, which team in which era do you think was the toughest for Georgetown to play against? Like, where does, like, like Huggins era West Virginia rank in terms of tough matchups for Georgetown? I I would probably put them right up near the top. Mm. Say, yeah, they might be it kind of, you know, post-Final Four run. can't really think of another one, really. Well, that's probably Pitt and Cincinnati. Once Cincinnati got good, yeah, yeah like, like it, it was Ronan. always kind of that mold—the tough physical teams that could kind of yeah. just clutch and hold on on the defensive end. But even then, yeah. I mean, there were some games where you kind of smacked around Cincinnati and Pitt pretty good, um, like 2012, yeah. 2013, those seasons, yeah. which West Virginia never really felt like you you got them like that. Yeah. So, Bobby, do you want to do you want to talk about the circumstances like where we were? Actually, Nolan, were you doing anything particularly interesting this this particular night for this game? I I actually do remember where I was. Nice. I was in college in upstate New York at a friend's house, and there everyone would get together downstairs. I said I gotta go upstairs, get the TV, and watch this game. So. While there was a party going on downstairs, I was upstairs by myself watching uh, the game. So that's my memory. This was a rare Saturday night game. Yeah, we didn't have very many of these. I I Um, honestly, I was on the bus. John, you were there too. I didn't know you. Yeah, I had to double check when the announcer said it's a Saturday night. I would have thought this was Saturday at noon. I don't know why. I have no, I I remember obviously the bus, I'm guessing it left at maybe two or something. But Probably sometime, sometime in the afternoon, yeah. I'm picturing it being during the day. I mean, I don't know what's wrong with my memory. I, uh, yeah, so we should, we should explain to people. So the bus we're talking about, um, the Hoya Hoop Club over the years occasionally does bus trips to away games. Um, 
you know, they try every, and this is the era when I was actually on the hoop club board too. So every year when the schedule comes out, they kind of look and find a game that has to be close enough where a bus trip is reasonable. It has to be the right kind of start time. Um, and this is probably your ideal situation. Um, you know, in 2008, you can imagine like the peak of demand for Georgetown, both home and road tickets. So hard to get road tickets. This game was a sellout for sure in West Virginia. Um, it's far enough away that you don't want to drive yourself. That's one of the reasons the Hoop Club has trouble selling tickets to Villanova games because you can just drive there. It's right up 95. Um, but it's at night, so you also don't have to get up early to get on the bus. Um, you can enjoy a few adult beverages on the way to the game. Um, may or may not have done that. Uh, but yeah, so this is one of the, the bus trips that the Hoop Club did. Um, a bunch of Hoop Club people, actually several player family members to include, I know Roy Hibbert's family was on the bus, Bobby. I think you remember that. The Hibberts were definitely on the bus. Yeah. Were you in the front of the bus or the back of the bus? Do you remember? You don't remember what day, what time of day it was. I don't even know what time it was. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of like, like I said, against the Duke game, I used to kind of just, ha- here's my season tickets and people kind of pick which one they go to. So on this, I actually made some friends in the hoop club. Um, obviously not you, but I had some other friends that were in the hoop club and I think we were more actually like closer to the front. So they're probably not where the cool kids were. I was, I was, I recall being a few rows from the back. Okay. Um, yeah, exactly. So I, I, my, my, my recollection of this game too was, I was joking with my wife yesterday, the day before that I feel like in my seats, I could have almost touched the ceiling of the, the West Virginia Coliseum. And I went out, I, I fished out my, uh, a ticket stub from this game and I actually went on West Virginia's website and looked at where the ticket is. Um, they changed the section numbers. I kind of guessed based on, I looked at it based on where my pictures are from the game and uh, was in whatever section 80, I think it's like section 218 now, uh, row Q. And I looked it up, uh, that section goes up to row S. So I was literally in the third row from the back. So that gives you the idea of like the demand for West Virginia games that year. They always put the road fans in the like worst seats that they can get away with. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was a night game. Um, I think every probably stereotype you can imagine about West Virginia fans in night games was absolutely true in that game. Um, very intimidating place to play. Um, I, I'm imagining the juice from the previous year probably impacted things a little bit in addition to Georgetown being a top 10 team. Um, it was intimidating. It was a really fun trip, but it was definitely an interesting (laughs) atmosphere. Well, uh, I would put it up there. I've been to some Carrier Dome games with like twenty-five to 30,000. And I got to tell you, pound for pound, it's, it's actually a pretty significant margin for West Virginia here. I can remember when we were going there, like I said, it was definitely daylight. And just being like, wow, this, you know, this is just a depressing area. <laughs> that was kind of one of my takeaways and i had you know i went to jmu i had some friends that went to west virginia so i'm not even you know putting down the area or the college but it was kind of like a dreary day and it was just like yeah we're we're surely in west virginia right now some of the i i i i i have a much more positive view of west i actually find it to be a really beautiful state but yes it was i don't think it was a kind of misty day it was the evening we got there so it was probably a little bit like sleepy hollow but Yes. So anyway, there so there was there 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 was a game, and uh, you know I don't know how much you guys want to talk about the first half. Um, I want to talk more about the end of the first half. So I'm going to kick it to one of you guys. I I do want to bring up one thing um, since it's one of my pet things here. Um, 
and not, how, we're going to keep doing this series, I assume, for a while. And not, not every game we talk about, the officiating is going to be a thing at all. And in this game, it was really only a thing for like maybe two plays. And the, the one really big one at the end that we're going to talk a lot about. Um, but I do want to talk about who was officiating this game. So your, your officiating crew is, is uh, Ed Hightower, uh, Ed Corbett, and Pat Driscoll. Um, Ed Hightower and Ed Corbett both later worked the national championship game together later that season, the Kansas-Memphis game, with our uh, podcast favorite, John Cal. Um, and Pat Driscoll, there's, there's always 10 officials that work the Final Four. There's like the three that work each game. And then there's like a 10th guy who's just the guy who sits at the table all three games. And that was Driscoll that year. So you have basically three Final Four caliber officials. And, and Corbett and Hightower, even in 2008, have been around forever and had done like multiple Final Fours between them. So you have about as good an officiating crew as you're going to get, even for a Big East game in that era when some of the old guys like Cal and Burr are still around. I think Tim Higgins is still around too. Higgins, yeah. Um, Hightower, even at that point, Hightower is, I guess, looking back, he was probably the first like college basketball example I can think of of a guy who was in what we would call today to be like a meme. Like there was, I think this originated like, help me out if you remember this, Nolan, like it originated like Michigan State message boards, I think where there was like a meme going around of like Ed Hightower doing like the crouch and like point dramatic thing that Ed Hightower yeah, I, I do that. And you would stick like Ed Hightower into like historical situations, like the Bernie Sanders thing that's going on right now. So, and he, 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 he had like a, a brief stretch of time. He primarily worked big 10, but he had a big little stretch of time here where he was working some big East games. And um, so you'd see him, I sat, I sat on the tunnel at, at Verizon at that point And, uh, You'd see Hightower. He was one of the officials. Like some guys, like sat around me, said sometimes talk to the officials. And Hightower was a guy who, who would definitely interact with you and smile back. Like he definitely gave like the double finger guns a few times, and he seemed like he was a fun personality. But uh, the, the the actual officiating during most of the game is like completely normal. It's actually there aren't a ton of fouls called in this game, but it's going to matter at the end. So just bringing that one up. Um, so actually, I want to. I want to go back to the thing I said earlier, and I want to ask Nolan about this because you're much more of a savant on, on, on strategy than I am here. Do you think there was anything to how West Virginia defended Roy Hibbert? Because it seemed like for a long time in this game, it was a real slog getting him touches. Yeah, it's, and I was surprised. I, I really did not remember Jamie Small again at all. <laughs> I kind of no. remember that name from my memory, which, I mean, he wasn't a big guy. So I think just the way, West Virginia could be physical. Um, and Roy, I, I don't know. And this was a common theme throughout that season, it felt like, which was how aggressive of a Roy Hibbert were you going to get game to game. And the way they fed him in the post that year. I mean, I, I remember it towards the end of that year, like the pit game in the Big East tournament, that was a big talking point afterward. Like, why, why did Roy not get the ball? What happened? Um, so I think it was that year, I don't know if it was so much what other teams did as much as it was, could we just not feed the post? And was Roy maybe not featured as much as he should have been? Um, but it, how many shots, I'm looking at his shot attempts now in this game. Um, yeah, I mean, he was only four for six, which you have that weapon to not utilize that more. It is, it's a little odd. Um, I had, I had a note somewhere, like he was, he only had two attempts for like, it was he was two for two in the first half, yeah. Like, and he and one of his attempts was a tip in near the end of the game. So, like, he really it was it was a slog. So, speaking of strategy, 
Um, Smalligan actually was a transfer from Butler. It seemed like Huggin or it it seemed like they wanted to try and extend the game, like you know, extend Hibbert out. So Smalligan, he made both of his threes. He hit one in each half, which is just crazy. Um, he made eleven threes that year. Okay, so he made two of them in this game. You know, I had that right now that outside yeah. of this game, he was nine for fifty-eight for the year, and he <laughs> yeah. made two. And then I forgot; had, it, I didn't remember. But at the end of the first half, he had a buzzer beater three that was waved off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was going to mention that those things matter in a close game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They do. Um, so speaking of close game, this game was really close. Georgetown got out to a quick lead. Um, you know, they then they ended up going down by six. And for me, one of the big parts, obviously, at the end of the game, there's crazy stuff on both sides of the court. But for me, with five minutes left, Georgetown's down 24-18 after my guy Alex Ruoff drains a three. And you're thinking, okay, this place, John, you were there. It was just absolutely rocking. It was night. So everyone's just, I mean, that place... Who knows what happened after we left Morgantown? But I know that a lot of there's a lot of stuff that probably happened. At that point, you're thinking complete danger zone, right? Complete danger zone. And then what happens? Georgetown ends ends the half on a 7-0 run. Hibbert had four of those points. And I think there was a three from a three from Sap, which is a little a little foreshadowing. So you know, obviously, the end of the game is the big part. But I thought what Georgetown did at the end of the first half was really important because they were kind of teetering about getting blown out. And more so to that, I think it was um, John, or I'm sorry, I think it was how he brought it up. Just, or shoot, I can't remember. There's so, there's so many people, but just how that arena felt or looked on TV and the calmness of Georgetown, right? Like you've got Wallace, who's just not going to get rattled by anything. Sap, you know, they've been on the final four. Freeman comes in basically as like, you know, he's a five-star from DeMath. Like, he's been on Team Takeover. Like, he's got everything going on, right? So you just have, like, these cyborgs, right? Like, these basketball, like, you could put them anywhere. And I'm not saying they're going to beat everybody all the time. But, like, this is a calm bunch that runs a very structured offense. And to watch it, and I think because there's no fans now, it even looks more, like, startling to see what that environment was like. But, man, just a crazy environment, I thought at the end of the first half was really a really big part. I mean, this was kind of the peak of that era when they were in a close game. You just felt at ease that they were going to pull it off. Yeah. Um, you look at the game before this was Syracuse at home, yeah. uh-huh. which they won in overtime. Uh, and how he mentioned the Hibbert three against UConn already happened. I mean, the only two losses at this point were at Pitt, which is always a tough spot. And then I think the Memphis game was kind of a realization that you might not have been that top-end Final Four caliber team this year, um, or at least not on Memphis' level. They they were terrific that year. But it was just that stretch of basketball from mid-2007 season, um, really all the way to the Davidson game this year. If, if Georgetown was in a close game, you just felt – Get into halftime uh, within distance, and in the second half, you just you're going to find a way. I think the Memphis what? game was early. No, I mean, it wasn't you know first couple of games, but I think it was early enough in the year with Austin and Chris, and mm-hmm. the game got a little bit too high scoring for them. Is kind of my yeah. My, that's yeah. kind of the way I remember that game going because I I remember thinking you know Derek Rose on a different level, but I remember 
thinking that, wow, you know, this is what Chris Wright can do. Like he can do different stuff than Jonathan Wallace. You know, he can mm-hmm. do different stuff than Jesse Sepp. So even though like I think they ended up losing by 13 or so, it just kind of got too high scoring for what they were prepared for. And, you know, Austin and Chris were still kind of young, but I didn't, I didn't necessarily feel like, Oh, Memphis is on a different level. I just remember thinking like, if they play a team like this again, it'll be interesting once. And obviously Derek Rose is a freshman as well. So I guess the excuse I'm using is maybe a little bit, not, you know, not perfect, but I thought within Georgetown's system, I wasn't. I didn't. I didn't leave that game thinking like, uh, it was. It was. It was more just like, you know, you're an option team and you got d- down by a couple touchdowns. You're in a little bit of trouble. It's just a little. It was just a little too fast. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. What is the stat? I always, I can't remember the exact number, but the stat I, I put up on Twitter all the time that is that in 06, 07, and 08, in games decided by three or less or in overtime, I think Georgetown was fifteen and one. Yeah, which is yeah. nuts. I mean, that's beyond like that's beyond like, standard deviations beyond like what you would expect even for a good team. Like there was a reason they were good in close games, but it got to the level of absurdity that year, right? Like, <laughs> you know, Roy, Roy Hibbert hitting a second career three, and like this block chart, this you know, goal ten not goal ten going your way, and the sort of semi bailout three point three free throw call on Marquette later in the year. Like it got a little weird. Like wow, and we then, really have a horse. That was the and John, you would know this. That was the Villanova John Wallace kind of yeah. passive sideline yeah. call, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, Do you know the official yeah, that made that call? Bob Donato. Okay. Who had the misfortune? I think also being from suburban Pennsylvania, like Philadelphia, so he's got a lot of shit for that after the game. I recall. <laughs> um, yeah. That, I mean. What was interesting about this game, yeah, I mean, like, the pace probably helped, right? Like, West Virginia was never going to run away with – I mean, maybe, like, you get it to, like, a 10- or 12-point danger zone and it stays there, but it wasn't going to go, like, nuclear and go 15 or 20. West Virginia was never the kind of team at that point that was going to, like, go on a humongous, fast-paced scoring run. The game was always going to be low-paced. But this was – this is a – like, is this the Jesse Sapp game? I mean, Jesse, to me, was – He's got the, he played the most minutes, took the most shots, scored the most points. He's the only guy who hit more than one three-pointer. And I had notes throughout my you know, notes for this game where a lot of times where Jesse Sapp is not freelancing, but he's taking – he's the one player who's being, like, uber-aggressive. Like, he took a ton of pull-up three-pointers in this game, including the game-winning shot. He was being really aggressive, like, beating the post and just doing a lot of stuff. Like, it felt like maybe this game, like – you needed somebody like that. Like if Roy was being kind of bottled up and nobody else was really taking the reins offensively, you needed somebody to take this step. So, yeah. so that, that, that really important Georgetown run to end the first half to go from down six to up one, their lead lasted exactly 10 seconds after halftime because our guys yep. Mulligan nailed a three. And then next thing you know it, the Mountaineers are up 10. Yeah. And that feeling I had at the end of the first half, I, it it came back real quick. And then yeah. over the next nine or ten minutes, Georgetown just kind of, you know, stayed there, kept chipping away, chipping away, and eventually Austin Freeman puts them up with about seven minutes left. I don't know if West Virginia changed anything defensively midway through the second half, but all of a sudden, out of nowhere, like... Georgetown hit about three or four backdoor cuts, like in a very short succession. 
Um, like completely out of nowhere. Like it hadn't been a part of the offense. It hadn't been like the part of the offense that was getting you scoring in the first half. And all of a sudden with like 10 minutes to go, the whole thing opens up and it's like a 2006 Duke game for three or four minutes in a row. I don't know what to change. Just rewatching that. It was for a while. You saw some of the careless turnovers that just killed this team at times. And you watch it and you think, oh, if they just could have cut out those turnovers, how much better they would have been. But then you're right, later in the game, it, it opens up and they hit a few of those. And you're like, okay, that's that's why they run it. Yeah. I think also in my first question about did it make sense to start Freeman instead of Ewing, and I totally think it did because I think Ewing was a great six-man, and he basically played starter minutes most of the season. But Austin was just one of those guys that you feel – we saw this on the, and I guess I'm just thinking of road trips. I remember there was a game at Villanova and it just seemed like if you got Austin and like, you know, he could cut any certain way. And if he gets around the rim, he's going to find a way to get that layup from, you know, when we say layups, it doesn't necessarily mean just like, you know, you dribble down, jump off your left, put it up with your right. Like we're talking about like body contorting, you know, very little space. Like you got that moment that you're open on the backdoor cut, but now you know, in between the trees and just the angle of difficulty, just a master at that, you know, like one of the guys that's perfect for this offense and Jonathan Wallace too, you know, you could get him open and he just flashes through and is able to get some sort of, you know, layup in from any angle. So I don't know about you guys, but I mentioned it last week as well, watching the spin dribble by Jonathan Wallace and then watching the backdoor cuts, man, like it just, it just takes me back. Austin coming in that year, it just felt like he was a luxury. It was, which is in hindsight, he's a McDonald's All-American from DeMatha, a top 15 player in the country. And it was like, okay, you're just going to be, you know, the fifth option here, a nice piece of the puzzle, which now is saying that it, I kind of took it for granted at the time, for sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, they get there you know, with this, this point in the second half, they get their big scoring run right around. It's like the 13 minutes or about the eight minute mark. They end up tying it with about eight minutes to go. Mm-hmm. West Virginia ends up with a pretty steady, like three to four point lead for most of the end of the game until you get to the end game. What do you think of, so I, I wrote down, it was interesting with the lineup that, that JT3 was playing in the crunch time minutes, like the last minute or two of the game. Um, Summers was hurt. Had, yeah, I guess I, I guess I missed the part where Summers got hurt. But yeah, Ewing was in for for Summers, and and Freeman was in, and, and Hibbert was in, but uh, Rivers was in instead of Wallace, presumably a defensive thing. But he stayed in on offense. Yeah, he he was doing as much offense defense as he could get away with. Yeah, and you know the funny thing is, like Sapp was so assertive in that game. Like I don't think you lost much by not having Wallace out there. Like I think Sapp was willing to be the alpha in that game and the ball handler and took the final shot. So I mean, it worked out. So I've got uh, – so we just watched it, which is incredible. So Georgetown's down 52-49. We're, you know, we're really getting into crunch time, but there's no need to feel completely uh, helpless yet because it's these Georgetown Hoyas. Ewing had a great fa- – or a great steal. He doesn't get a chance to lay it up or dunk it. Joe Alexander fouls him. The ball almost goes in. It doesn't get over the rim, kind of like the angle he flipped it up at. When he missed both of those free throws, I remember starting to think, ah, maybe this just isn't your night. Maybe maybe the reigning NIT champions are going to get you. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we, you know, in the moment had gotten so accustomed to Georgetown just pulling these out. I, I, I confess I can't remember what my emotions were like during this game. Um, but I don't know, like, they had, they had pulled so many rabbits out of their hat over the previous year and a half. Like, why wouldn't you have expected them to do something, you know? It's a weird feeling. It's a weird feeling to have the complete 180 going on now. <laughs> it is. So next time down the court, Butler goes to the hoop. This is Sean Butler for West Virginia. He goes to the hoop, and there's something where he steps on Dewan's uh, foot or vice versa. So Dewan goes out. Butler gets fouled by Ewing. We see Summers and Lori Michael going back to the locker room, which I can only imagine that the Coliseum at that point was just, you know, state of the art. And uh, Butler then makes both of his free throws. So Ewing had just missed two free throws. Butler makes two free throws. Now we're talking, we're talking 54-49. They come down the court and Hibbert, if you guys, I think John, you mentioned this, they were struggling to get him the ball. They couldn't get him the ball. They got him the ball like, kind of like in a no man's land. And I can't even remember how many shots he took like this. He he takes a really weird, like longish two. He misses. Ewing Jr. gets the rebound and he, they call Fallon Rue off. I mean, that is just such a, like when you're looking back at these games and, you know, you think of the block and all that stuff, but there's these little pieces that are such a big deal. And I don't know if you guys can remember what I'm talking about, but I'm like, what is Hibbert doing? I know he'd made that three, but he just took a, like a terrible bad two. Like, I can't even think of how many of those he has, like, you know, like in his career. The, the relevant thing, though, it's not that Hibbert took a weird shot there. It's that, like, in the 2008 version of the Hoyas, Patrick Ewing Jr. got the rebound and got fouled and, of course, would make those two free throws. After he redeemed himself. Years. He and redeemed exactly, himself. Like, the, the, one of the things that characterized that team, there's, there's some weird luck going getting the 15-1 and one in those close games, but – this year in particular in 08, if you go through each of the close games, you will find that pretty much every guy on the roster has at least one game in which he makes the decisive play. It wasn't just, well, you can throw the ball at Jeff Green and he's a miracle worker, like sort of like you know, yeah. two years later what Kemba Walker would do for UConn, right? It was, it was everybody on this team would somehow come up with a play in a close game that would be decisive. And it was, it was it's just how this team worked. No, yeah, I mean, I, was that as shocking to you that just, I mean, the, that shot to me, it just, you know, I'm, I'm not shutting up about it. Cause it just, it just, it, it just didn't seem like it was something that I would, that, that you ever saw this, this team do. This team. And I, I don't think myself just analytically in the time realized it, but the way they functioned was it was either three or a layup. Yeah. Like there were no long twos. It was, you know, if they ever could have just played it a little bit faster tempo on offense and cut out the turnovers, I mean, it was it was what you would want out of an offense in 2020, really. So I'll keep us going. So Ewing, like I said, redeems himself, makes the two. It's 54-51, West Virginia with 216 left. Um, as John just mentioned, there's a lot of offense, defense going on during the free throws. Wallace goes out, Rivers comes in, and, you, you know, I'm thinking, like, God, how many – I'm watching a game from, you know, 2008. And I'm like, how many timeouts do you have, John? Like, can you get Wallace back in if you need him? Obviously, it doesn't matter because they win, and it's just crazy to even be thinking that. Um, They hold them. They get a second straight possession where Georgetown gets the offensive rebound. And on this one, I think it's a sap miss. Hibbert, I wouldn't even say tipped it, and he kind of just, like, flicks his wrist. 
and it goes in. So we're now 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 we're at fifty four fifty three, and I think two thousand eight Bobby B is feeling really good. Could I just backtrack one possession earlier, Bobby? Yeah, this was at like just under a tick under two minutes. Okay, where Roy, for some reason, he gets matched up with Joe Alexander just one on one, and it's I forgot how massive of a human being Roy was, <laughs> but if you watch him out there on this in this game, the way he moved his feet on defense. Maybe it's just another thing I took for granted during the time, but he could really move for a guy his size. And that possession against Alexander, he stays right in front of him, forces a tough pull-up, and they get the rebound and the stop, which, I mean, he's guarding a lottery pick, and he sticks right with him. It, it was pretty incredible to rewatch that, just the way Roy could move. You bring up something that we're going to come back to on the last possession for West Virginia I want to I wanna bring up. So thank you. Okay, so it's 54-53. Georgetown kind of gets caught on, you know, a little bit of the t- taste of their own medicine here. We get a Ruoff to Darius Nichols on a big back screen. Rivers gets caught. 56-53. JT3 calls timeout with 51 seconds left. How nervous are we? I don't remember. <laughs> I, I, I really that means you must have had a really good trip up there. I probably did, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like I said, you, you, it, you were, you were certainly, you know, accustomed, you know, to close games watching the 2008 Hoyas from the previous two seasons. Like, why wouldn't you have been at least comfortable? Yeah. So JT3 yeah. calls that timeout probably as much to talk about a play as to get Jonathan Wallace back in the game because even though he wasn't really hitting a lot this game or even taking a lot of threes, he's someone that West Virginia has to guard. Whereas, as we know. Jeremiah Rivers, uh, Nate Lubick, you know, Georgetown's had guys over the, you know, I would say the last couple of years, but it's been a long time. Oh, you know, I'll say the modern era of Georgetown basketball that the other teams didn't necessarily have to really account for on the perimeter. Um, Sap again, John, as you talked about, kind of, I wouldn't, you know, freestyling, whatever you want to say, he actually gets fouled and he makes the shot. It was never going to be an and one but it's almost like, you know, the shot he took was pretty tough from the angle. He uses the glass. It goes in. Um, he, make, he makes both uh, both uh, free throws. But you're right. This was just, and this is, again, a precursor to what's coming. Jesse Sapp was feeling pretty good about himself. And they had enough guys to where you could have, you know, a night where Freeman and Wallace don't hit threes, right? Like, we know, taking it back to right now, like, we know if Javon Blair <laughs> isn't, hitting and by hitting i mean like if he's not gonna have like a four for 11 night from three like you're totally screwed right and on this team you guys can have a night because then jesse sap can do his thing so yeah you know it's it's just you know it's obviously you know just so many so many rich so many riches there um and then again part of what you want to call it luck fortune whatever rivers commits a pretty bad foul on Darius Nichols, but based on the time and everything left, it's not terrible. And Nichols helps by making the first, missing the second. So now we're setting the stage, 57, 55, 31 seconds left. West Virginia was 12, West Virginia was 12 to 23 from the line in this game. And it gets mentioned on the broadcast, but yeah, that's another reason you're 15 and one in close games. Stuff like that happens to you. So I was trying to figure out, did JT3 want Rivers to commit that foul or not? 
Yeah. And I couldn't tell what type of motion he was signaling from the sideline. Um, but it I had that written down. Stupid. Like, yeah, I don't I know. Mean, if it didn't seem like it. I mean, it didn't seem like Rivers, like, intentionally did it. Like, I don't know. No, yeah, I meant, like, the foul is stupid in that, like, if he wasn't told to foul, it seemed kind of silly to do. Yeah, and I, I couldn't tell just rewatching it if they wanted to foul in that situation, which I had that written down because I think if that's Estrick, you're definitely playing out that shot clock. Yes, you are. Um, <laughs> but uh, we're, talk, we're talking about this game in a different podcast here. <laughs> I think I – think, uh, regardless if JT three called for a foul or not, it was the right it was the right play there. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, final, final yeah. offensive possession on the court. We have Wallace, Sap, Ewing, Freeman, and Hibbert. As we noted, Dwan Summers was hurt. I'm guessing if Summers was hurt, I mean it's still you know he could have still not been on the court, right? I mean this is a completely reasonable lineup. Yeah. Um, Wall springs the ball up the court. I get I get my spin dribble. It's like he was saying hi to me. They they try and get Hibbert. They just they just can't get him. And I'm I'm glad that they didn't force it because they weren't the best uh post passing team in the country at that point. Wallace gets rid of the ball, gets it to sap at the top of the key with 10 seconds. He does a little crossover on Ruoff and comes oh so close. Like if he had Brandon Bowman's shoe. We're, you know, from the Syracuse game a couple years earlier, you, you know, we're, we're looking at a very long two. It ends up being a three. Hoys are up 58-57 with 6.2 seconds left. Only the third time they're up in the second half. I think they're up in the second half for a total of 35 combined seconds. 10 seconds to start the half, the last seven seconds. And then there was like a 17 or 18 second stretch um, after a Freeman layup around the seven minute mark. There was this thing for a while under JT3, like a big thing on Hoya talk. I always wondered why we couldn't do like like out-of-bounds plays or like call some sort of special play at the end of the game. This probably was in a season where we weren't like in a 15-1 and one in close game stretch, but it was a thing for a period of time. Um, and I don't know what people expect out of like late game sideline out-of-bounds plays or like late game plays you call out of a timeout, like if er- like not every basketball game has the ending like Hoosiers. Like nobody has some weird like picket fences or like you know spider two wide banana thing going on. Like pretty <laughs> consistently in late game situations, you can talk about the Vanderbilt game. You can talk about the Louisville game later this year. This game, the game against UConn and Roy hit the three pointer. The plays we're running, they are just the basic offense. They are running a Princeton motion set. Like that is what it is. Jesse Sapp kind of short circuits it because he realizes the time's getting short, but they're just running Princeton. Is that yeah. special? I, I think what people want, and I know that I wanted this a lot, Hollis's last year, maybe the last two years of Hollis was just to, you know, even if it doesn't happen, to feel like you're not just running the offense and that you're I think I think there was a game where Hollis was like six for seven from three, but like that was like early in the game, like not too far after halftime. I think you just want to see those guys continue to get shots up or to look for them. Not just like, well, if the defense takes this away, we'll just go with plan B or C. You, you know what I mean? I think that's what, well, so that's what I remember at the time. This is one of those things like the, the, the things that you may have had a problem with, with the Princeton offense seems so quaint, you know, 12 or 13 years on when you watch this <laughs> team currently just be a complete and utter mess sometimes offensively with very little clue. I know yeah. we're watching good games when the offense worked well. 
But it's refreshing to go back and watch a Princeton set when they run it like for 20 or 30 seconds and be like, oh, yeah, during like the 20 or 30 seconds of this set, you can see like the six or seven different times when there's a look you can get, whether it's a back cut, a post-up yeah. opportunity, a guy on a screen or a flare, like it generates different types of looks. That's why it's fine to run a Princeton set at the end of a game like this. You're going to get three or four different opportunities for different guys. And it's hard for the defense. Yeah. Um, so really and, shot. Tough shot. Speaking of tough shot, so before that shot, Georgetown was three for 16 from three. They had been 0 for 8 that half. They ended the half one for nine. That was the that was it. That was the shot. Like they needed the three. They got the three. I remember at the time uh, being near uh, Roy's mom who could not even watch. And I heard her, I think, say to someone around her, did Roy hit it again? Which is kind of funny because against Connecticut, he had. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's just complete mayhem. So, John, you mentioned you're at the top. I, I worked my way down towards like the, there was kind of it's kind of like um, a railing where you're, you know, separating the con like the you know like when you come out of the concourse you either go up or down we were all going up i'd somehow worked my way down i don't know how big our section was i can't remember um i guess this is an era of smartphones although i don't think i have any pictures from it but uh it was just absolute mayhem in there like it was just like you said i describe that as i've been to a dc united game in costa rica against samprisa and i felt scared for a little bit i don't think i was scared but I do agree with you that it felt less safe than it did. And I've been to the carrier dome as well. It, it felt, it felt less safe than being at the carrier dome. To, to jump ahead about 15 minutes from now, like it definitely felt, I think that's probably a good term, less safe leaving the arena after the game. Well, if you um, remember the bus driver was like, we got to get the hell out of here. Yeah. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's weird. Like my, my, my wife remembers this a little more dramatically than I do. I, I was more casual than I think but I still felt like, huh, these folks are really angry. <laughs> what um, what kind of sick what kind of sick person are you that you would take your wife to a road game <laughs> in the upper decks in Morgantown? She has been a Georgetown fan longer than I have. So Perfect. she's got some great stories too. We should have her on the podcast sometime. Yeah, no, she uh she willingly entered into this arrangement, believe me. Well, it's good to see NY back. Um, Nolan. Did we win? Were... Did we win the game? It's not over Almost. yet. West Virginia Almost. has the ball. Um, Nolan, you mentioned where you were. Uh, did you, was there, you know, could the party below hear you? Or like, did you end up getting people <laughs> to join you and watching? What ended up happening so, over where? Yeah, the interesting part of that was a friend from college actually knew Jesse Sapp. Okay. Um, he was at the same, growing up, same Boys and Girls Club in New York City, um, playing basketball with him. So when he made the shot, he went nuts. So it was good to have somebody there with me <laughs> instead of just being alone by myself. Um, but yeah, leading up to that point, it was the same thing that year. You never really felt like it wasn't going to happen. You, you just kind of thought they were going to pull it out, and they did. And why? Where were you? So I don't think you're on the bus 50, trip. So at, we're at the point in the game when it's, what, 58-57 and West Virginia has the ball with the final possession? That's where we are? Yeah. 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 The, I, was, I was in the much more comfortable confines of uh, Tribeca in downtown New York City, waiting to go out to dinner and pleading with my wife to just wait an extra five minutes and then <laughs> about to 
run outside triumphantly with my hands up and uh, exulting. But I, I one thing one thing I had noticed when I rewatched this that I had never noticed before. I, the, the chants from the crowd uh, at Jesse Sapp, like in the last few minutes of the game. So the there was yeah. the Sapp is, Sapp is crap chant that you could you could hear audibly and and repeatedly in the last five minutes of the game, especially when he was at the free throw line. Uh, and I everyone obviously remembers the big Jesse Sapp three. I had completely forgotten that Jesse Sapp basically took most of our shots towards the end of that game. Uh, he yeah. hit a couple of big three, other you know big threes in that game, but he also you know drove to the basket and took some shots that went in and some shots that didn't, and and hit some free throws at the end. We perpetually this was a team that just did not have you know when the Princeton breaks down for teams that like to you know get messy teams like like West Virginia and, and Cincinnati in particular uh, during this, during the, these couple of years, we needed a guy who could break down a defense and just go to the basket when the shot clock was running down. Jesse Sapp was that guy on this team, especially with Chris Wright hurt and with Jeff Green no longer on the squad. And so, you know, Johnson Wallace had one of his worst games of the season uh, he was in a huge funk during the stretch, and he he never performed well against sort of more physical uh, defenses and more physical backcourts. Jesse Sapp was not just the guy who hit the biggest three of that game; he was the guy who basically carried us over the line for the last six minutes of the game and at crucial spots. I mean, this was arguably the best game of his career, most important game of his career. And 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 also, I'm sorry that. The sap is crap chant was just, you know, I mean, not only do you have thousands of West Virginia fans, you know, staring, mocking him, but this is a tough New York City guard who took it personally and just went after them as soon as he got the ball, which was great to see. Yeah, and I think that's something that Len Elmore mentioned on the broadcast, being a, a New Yorker as well. If you want to see a great Jesse Sap play at about the 1910 minute mark of the second half, right? as the second half started, he makes a defensive play that's not as good as Ewing's at the end, but it's close that uh, Roy got beat off the dribble and Dewan steps up to help and Jesse's on the back line. And I think it was maybe Wellington Smith that he caught. Yeah. That Jesse comes out of nowhere and saves two points with a block shot. It was an incredible play. I actually have that in my notes too. He also, did he... Somebody like got seriously wrecked on a fast break too. I can't remember who did that. One of our, one of, maybe even staff just like totally like hard foul the guy going in for a layup. And I thought it was like, mm-hmm. wow, you don't see that one in 2021. Um, you guys, let's talk about goaltending or no goaltending. Okay. Let's talk about the final play. Not, okay. So- not a bad. We earlier this season, I think in Georgetown fandom, we talked about throwing passes out of bounds on an inbound late in the game. This is how you do it. <laughs> so on the court, we've got Rivers, Freeman, Sapp, Ewing, and Wallace. And coming into watching the game again, one of the first things I was thinking about was, I obviously know how the game goes. And I was thinking, you know, where the hell was Roy? You know, who I would have assumed would be just stationed under the basket, right? 
And, well, he was on the bench. Very interesting decision. Um, Nolan, you mentioned earlier when we were talking about this, about how well he moved his feet for a big man on Joe Alexander. And, you know, so we can talk about that. But, okay, so West Virginia's got that baseline pass. Nichols to Alexander, back to Nichols. Rivers is on is on Nichols. He gets crushed on a screen with Smalligan. I don't know who was supposed to call that. Nobody did. So Nichols gets the ball. Butler's in the corner. Gets it to Butler. Sap is on Butler. Butler's driving baseline. And Ewing comes from, like, behind to block this shot. Right? Like, he's... So when Rivers gets crushed trying to stay with Nichols by Smalligan at the three-point line, Ewing's around there. He's on Nichols. Then he starts going to the basket. And when I think of a block, I don't usually think of a block coming from this kind of an angle. And that's what makes the play even crazier in my mind. The you know, So Butler gets it up. It's kind of like a finger roll. It's not like a normal shot where you kind of shoot it and it has a guarantee. Like you, you kind of like know how, how it's going to go. This is kind of like floating in air, kind of going sideways. At least my Georgetown view of it has it like that. It gets blocked. Ewing, Ewing gets it. Hands up on the ground. The gun goes off. The referees run away. Huggins looks like he's... It looks like he's trying to run after the rest, but like his knees won't bend. He's doing some sort of weird waddle. And, you know, this is 13 years ago. I imagine he's in better shape. He's also wearing a sports coat. There's no tie, but he's not wearing his normal, you know, just kind of like warm-up gear. Um, like I said, Ewing hits the ground. Freeman runs over to him. Wallace runs over to him. Sap goes running to the bench first. Um, the refs, they just get out of here. I imagine in 2021, we're going to kind of go to the monitor for the next 25 minutes. That doesn't happen in 2008. Yeah. Uh, boos are raining down. Ewing is waving to the crowd while Omar Watad is kind of like, you know, embracing him, which is kind of funny to see him. I think that's Kenny Izzo in the back. Who's the, no, it's not, it's not, it's not Kenny Izzo. There's some walk on that's kind of in the background there. Was um, it Jansen? What's that? Was it Jansen? Was that his name? Yeah, Brian yep, yep, yeah. you're right. Macklin uh, picks up Ewing. JT3 could be seen kind of waving everyone. Um, they, they they show the replay a couple times. They end, which I think is a perfect based on being there, with just all these state troopers at midcourt. And I think we're off to the X Games. <laughs> Why was Wallace on the court? Exactly. Why wasn't Hibbert on the court? I don't like. I, I'm not even. I mean, you're right. Why wasn't Hibbert on the court? But 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 why did we have both Wallace and Rivers in the game at the same time? Are you sure it was the two of them? Yeah. I mean, because we were going offense defense pretty yeah. much every pos- every possession down the stretch. Yeah, they're they're both out there. Yeah, so it's, it's funny crazy, at right? the end. I I think John Wallace thinks that it was actually a goaltend. I I don't think he realized they won for about a couple seconds there. It's it's <laughs> interesting to watch his reaction. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I'm trying to think of the logic of, I mean, obviously the way you're clouded by the way the play actually played out where like the uber athletic Patrick Ewing ends up like an incredible makeup speed, getting a, essentially a chase down block here. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the scenario is with that amount of time where like a guy Roy Hibbert's guarding is going to make a difference or get a touch on this play. So what do you, I mean, are you just kind of stationing? I, I don't you know. Put him, you who, put him under the basket. So what happened couldn't happen. Like Deshaun Butler's not driving baseline. If Roy Hibbert's standing there. Yeah. It's, yeah. I guess that's, it's interesting. Like, I don't know like what, like depending on, I just I have to remember who West Virginia has on the court and what that those players are going to do. Maybe the thought is like, 
they're probably going to park guys out at like the three point line or try to get a kick out or something. And Roy's never going to be able to cover that. I don't know. Like, out there. Yeah. Is he out there? I don't know that. Yeah. Smallgan's the one that rivers gets crushed by his screen. Yeah. And, and Summers was hurt, right? Summers yeah, left yeah. the game. Yeah. So that, I mean, that, Macklin, that Macklin's our five-star yeah. recruit that we just don't play. <laughs> I do I do have one nit to pick on this play, though. For all the, like, the, you know, the, the, the passing to the guy out of bounds, give and go thing, and the screen that West Virginia executes pretty perfectly, it gets it gets the dribbler about a free run at past half court. Um, do we have a problem with Jesse Sapp giving up baseline to Deshaun Butler there? Yeah. Because <laughs> basically – the guy gets the clear run off the screen and just kind of passes it to Deshaun Butler in the corner. And theoretically, like Jesse Sapp should have him pretty well shut down there, but he gives up baseline pretty easily. I think he's, it looks like Jesse's afraid to foul. I don't know if we were in the bonus at that point, probably, but he looks like he's afraid to foul. He doesn't want to get a reach in foul. So, yeah. I mean, that's definitely the case. If you, if you think back to the previous season, in the Vanderbilt game, after Jeff Green hits that shot and, uh, you know, Vanderbilt, you know, heaves a half-court shot, if you listen to what Jesse Sapp said, at, uh, you know, during that dog talk episode with, with Chris and, and Austin, he freaked out because he thought he fouled the Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt shooter at half-court. And, and after the game, like, JT3 just basically chewed him out and was like, you're lucky, you're lucky that they didn't call it because he reached in at the end of that game. So I wonder if he was thinking back to – you know, hmm. one of the last situations in which, you know, Georgetown takes an improbable late lead and he doesn't want to do something uh, aggressively stupid towards the end. So I want to get everybody's snap opinion on this. It's 12 years later. You've just rewatched the game again. Um, was it a goaltender or not? Bye. I'll go first. I, I think whatever way. So I don't even know. Is this reviewable like in 2021 terms? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, it was literally like it came up at the end of the Georgetown Villanova game at the end of last year. They reviewed a goaltending at the end of that Oh, game. yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, I think that whatever way they call that, you couldn't switch it. Like I said, it didn't have the normal, like, arc of a shot where, you know, it's like a jump shot. Like, you know, like it's going to hit that apex and it's going to go down. This is kind of like a finger roll where it's kind of just like floating and moving towards the basket. Yeah. I think that if they'd called it the other way, I think it would have it would have stayed. Um, I also kind of wrote down here, is this the kind of game that if it happens to like John Thompson Jr.'s team at the Coliseum in like 77 and it's not on TV, like it absolutely goes to the home team? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Howie, goaltending or not? I think the call on the field stands. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think it was really, really, I think it was really, really close. And this is this is during this weird stretch within basically the same year. All of us were asking questions like, "What is a walk after the Jeff Green Vanderbilt shot?" And then, "What is a goaltend or a block here?" And then, "What is a foul when Jonathan Wallace gets fouled in the backcourt with like less than a second to go against Villanova?" Uh, so we had a lot of these fifty fifties, and we won all of them back then. We were just good. <laughs> no, no one goaltending or not. Not goaltending. I was actually surprised how I found it to be more conclusive on the rewatch. That to me, it's very close, but I, to me, not a goaltend. I I'm of the same opinion as Nolan. I was surprised how fairly clear cut it is. And keep in mind, this is 2008, sort of standard def, high def ish, on a YouTube like burn of a game. So there weren't a ton. I mean, there there were good angles, but it wasn't the most like. 
high desk up in the world. Um, so starting the fishing, so this was where the officials were positioned on the court. This is Ed Hightower's call, which is why Bob Huggins is running after Ed Hightower when he runs out to the tunnel. Um, I don't think he was running. I think it was one of those where like, he was going to run after him, but he realized, oh, wait, he's just right there. His knees so weren't like moving. Like, he, was, he was running. He was moving so weird. <laughs> he was, he he's was sauntering. He's trying not to get himself suspended, I think. Um, but um, so, so Hightower is the one who made the call, and it was Ed Hightower's call. Um, Ed Corbett was under the basket. So he, it's not his call. He's in the least of a position to make the call. But, um, uh, but the, I'm still, still friends with Evan Shabakin, Rich's, Rich's son, who still works at the table at Georgetown Games, does stats for Rich occasionally. Um, at some point, either later that year or the following season, Evan said that he had talked to Ed Corbett about this game. I was joking like, hey, you know, what about that goaltending call at the end of the Georgetown-West Virginia game? And I guess what Ed Corbett said was that he'd watched he he watch that replay like 15 times, and he said, to be honest, I don't know if it was a goaltender or not. I don't know what I would have called. So for whatever that's worth. It was probably a coin flip thing. Like, I, I don't know if I ever really bothered to watch the replay of the, uh, was it Wahab that made the block at the end of the Villanova game that got turned into a goaltend? Oh, I, don't, I don't know if I ever bothered to even watch the replay of that, but that was a weird one because I don't think, if I remember that, I don't really think the officials actually made a conclusive call on the court. They just sort of said, eh, let's just go to replay. And then yeah, they went with goaltending. That feels like the kind of thing, like, of course, the 2020 Hoyas would get that call, whereas, of course, the 2008 Hoyas would get this call. But we're all right. It was not a goaltend. Yeah. And Georgetown led for 35 seconds in that half. Came away with another another big win. Um, as far as the broadcast, was this the game that made Huggins go away from at least dressing up? Do we know? It had to have been. Maybe, I don't know, there's like a midlife crisis here, or just he's back home now, so he feels more relaxed. Bob, Bob, it, it, Bob Huggins, like, is, is an interesting is an interesting place. Like, I. He gets a lot out of his teams for a guy that, like, transparently on the surface does not seem to give much of a crap. Like, he just, I don't know if he just has this sort of chill attitude about him in a way, but, like, you know, like, Chris Mullen has the, like, I'm dead behind the eyes thing going on. He doesn't get much out of his team. Like, Bob Huggins, like, I don't know. He just doesn't seem to give much of a crap. But he got, he has teams that are always in the top 15. Yeah. So, like I said, I had a family friend on that team, and, uh, he was uh, Ruoff is a junior in this game. He's got one more year, and so he was. You know, he played two years for Beeline. That's who recruited him. Two years for Huggins. Um, the in the middle part of this year, I guess this is about the middle part. Um, him and some other guys really weren't into Huggins, and then it's the type of thing where by the end of the following year, he 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 loved him. Right, so it seems like if you can get through the beginning, especially when you're not recruited by him, that's obviously a difficult spot to be in. Uh, we just saw Jake and go through that. Um, Jesse Govan, all that stuff. But it seems like there was an initial, I hate this. This is awful. Cause he's clearly completely different than beeline. Right. Like I think we can agree on that. And eventually he wore him over, not warm over, but you know, he won them over and the guys love him. And you talk to, you know, former players, Everyone loves Bob Huggins. So whatever it is he does, it completely works. Um, the game started out, and Dave Posh was on the call with Len Elmore. 
who I know just completely hates Georgetown. He's one of those Syracuse guys. And I thought it was a weird reference early that... Len Elmore is not. You mean Pash? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, it seemed like... I thought it was. I thought JT3 had been there long enough that we didn't have to reset the table for everyone. Maybe they thought a Saturday night audience just wasn't familiar with Georgetown, a team that had just been to the Final Four. But he, you know, oh yeah, you know, JT3's done a good job of picking the program up after Craig Eshrick. Now, obviously, I love Craig Eshrick uh, references more than anybody. Well, that's not true. Some of the guys on this podcast, but I thought that was kind of weird. And I thought during the game, Posh was just he wanted that upset so bad. He kept referring to other top 10 teams that lost that day. Are we going to see another one here? Jonathan Wallace went to the line late, later in the second half, and he's like trying to do the whole drink. So he hasn't missed in the Big East. He hasn't missed a Big East free throw yet. So somehow I found a way to get annoyed by Dave Posh 13 years after a broadcast. He's always annoyed me. You can just, (laughs) the Syracuse in him, it, it just seems, or he used to just ooze out. I think he was on the call in the 2010 Big East tournament which I thought was he was just being a homer during that call against Syracuse. That's the one that sticks out for me. But, yeah, he I, I have never been a fan. It was also crazy I, to hear – I'm sorry, just real quick. Early on in the game, talking about how Georgetown's not a good block. Like, they don't block a lot of shots, but they're leading the country in field goal percentage defense. Wow. Just think about that. And think about what we've seen over the last, you know, six years. Yeah, I mean, that, there, there was a – I, I had no problem with, with the broadcast, actually. It doesn't really bother me all that much. But I, I think that – yeah, I mean, the, the, the defensive numbers are just staggering uh, in, in, in retrospect compared to what we've seen in the last, you know, six, eight years. And it, it, was, it was this team. It was the team the year before. And then it was the – it was it was teams later also. I mean, it was uh, especially the 2012-2013 team uh, with Otto and 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 Hopkins uh, and Nate. I mean, we in Jabril, the the defense is what really stands out. I I don't I don't know that I needed to be reminded literally every five minutes that Roy Hibbert was only averaging 26 minutes a game, so it's not unusual yeah. to find him on the bench getting a breather. I, I don't, I don't care about that, but I, I did. There were elements of this game though, that I found troubling. And it reminded me that part of the reason why this game was so fun in, in hindsight uh, was because we had no business winning this game. <laughs> we just, we, we were losing most of it. We played horribly and yet we just, we pulled it out at the end and it was nice. So, We've talked about this a little bit. We kind of like hinted at it off and on during this. Let me just go over the six games real quick. I'm just going to list them, and you tell me which one you think was the luckiest. And I, when I when I list six, I'm not sure that the sixth one is that really of a lucky situation. I'm going to describe lucky as you kind of weren't really in it a lot, but you ended up winning. So one is the Hibbert UConn three, two, the game before West Virginia, the late comeback to force overtime, beat Syracuse at home. The game we just talked about is number three. Number four is the foul. Wallace gets fouled with like point whatever in the backcourt. It just, you know, shouldn't have affected the game, but it did. Five at Marquette. Wallace hits those those three pointers or the free throws late. 
And then six on here, like I said, I don't know if this is that lucky, but it was late. It was close late is basically the Big East regular season decider against Louisville, where it's another game in the low 50s and Summers hits that late shot. What what of those games, those are all, you know, some variation of luck involved. Which one do you guys each think is kind of the luckiest win of that group? I'll I'd start. say Marquette for okay. me. Marquette. At, at that point, that just felt like – in most of those, it felt like, okay, they're close games. We can pull this out. The Marquette one to me, I, maybe I need to rewatch it, but that one felt like it was just stolen. Yeah. That one, yeah. That Mar- Marquette feels like – I mean, it's kind of, it's a really, really it, – it's a correct foul call that puts John Wallace in the line, but it's a really dumb foul. It's kind of pointless. Um, not that the Villanova one isn't, and actually maybe that one's a little more inexplicable because Georgian has to make a good defensive stop on one end of the court before they even get that loose ball. But yeah, Marquette really did feel like he stole one. Howie, I don't know. I, the, the <laughs> thing the thing that stands out about all of these games is that there there wasn't an insurmountable deficit that we had to overcome. And yeah. just as there wasn't in this West Virginia game, the the greatest depth, the maximum deficit was like six or seven points. It was it wasn't that high. And we've talked we talked about this last week. We we typically never overcame deficits greater than ten in the JT three era. There were only like five games in probably ten years or so. Uh, and you know the UConn game jumps out, for example, the following year, the big Austin Freeman game where he scores over thirty points. But in the in the games you just rattled off. I don't know if anything was shocking. It was it was Marquette only because it was fouling a three point shooter with with no time left uh, more than more than the others. But at no point in those games were were we like we're definitely losing this game. They were all close to the end. I think. Do we? Do we? I want to be a rocket. I I realize I'm about to have to get out of here, but. Um, was was it did I say to, like the numbers say they were really good and that we have no reason to think otherwise they were in the top ten all year? Were they were they overrated? I mean, yes, they never really did get down by a ton. These games, while there's a little bit of luck involved, none of these were like big comebacks where they really had to pull something out. They were all close. Um, but part of the legacy of this game is. Um, to this point, Georgetown still had not beaten a ranked team that year, and they didn't do it until the second-to-last game in the regular season against Marquette. They only beat two teams that were ranked at the time. And then Louisville, yeah. In the regular season, it was the last two games of the regular season. Um, like I said, the numbers say they were fine. I just, always, in retrospect, it always felt to me like there was some hidden thing that was a little bit missing. Like in the fact, like when they did lose games, like on the road to Pitt, Louisville, Syracuse, they were getting not blown out, but they were like. You know, low double-digit losses where, like, it really wasn't that competitive. Like, I always did feel like there was something missing in retrospect. Yeah. The, the thing that was missing, which I think we now know, is we didn't have a go-to scorer who could sort of manufacture his own shot when the Princeton off, when the sets sort of broke down at the end. The only guy who could really do that was Jesse Sapp. And 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 we saw, you know we saw what you know, with with mixed results it, it worked out in the West Virginia game but we you know Wallace wasn't that guy I mean Hibbert wasn't that guy unless he's catching the ball down low Freeman was only a freshman Wright was hurt so I think that's what it was on this team 
I think I, I don't know if you were I don't know if you had stepped off by this point, but no one was bringing up all the kind of leaky turnovers in this game in the West Virginia game. Um, oh, and what yeah. no one was describing this sort of phenomenon of like a lot of leaky turn. Man, if you just cut out the leaky turnovers, like he could have really made something here. Um, you know, we talked about this many times in the podcast. Wasn't that kind of the story of the Davidson game, where all those leaky turnovers kept happening and they didn't pull it out that time? Well, real quick, and I know you don't care. I think the Syracuse win was the luckiest just because mm. they were kind of, they were kind of trailing for the last 10 minutes. And um, I went back and looked at the box score, 14 turnovers, 14 assists. Austin Freeman had kind of a howler. Um, it was really fortunate to force overtime. And then once they got to overtime, you know, everything was fine. Um, going back to the Davidson game, I thought for all the luck they had, that was a really unlucky game. You're never going to see a two seed shoot 63% and lose. That just doesn't fucking happen. Uh, the just the absurdity of that box score. Now it's the fouls. It's it's just the parade to the free throw line, and it's Vernon Macklin, the wrong guy, being fouled by Georgetown. But I think we're gonna. I think I'm gonna go the rest of my lifetime without seeing a top two seed shoot that high a percentage and lose. It just doesn't happen. So yeah, so, I, I will. No, sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm 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 actually gonna. I'm trying to tie this up in a bow. So please go. <laughs> I, I, I was really just going to say, I, I think the other thing about, I don't want to talk about the Davidson game and we should not <laughs> do either. a rewind of the Davidson game, but the, the, the other thing, the, the parallel that you could draw between that game later in the season and the game we're talking about tonight is in the first half, we, we couldn't get to the free throw line. We played really sloppy basketball. And when our offense stagnated, instead of figuring out a way to get it to guys in the, in the post and get fouled, we couldn't do that. Our turnovers were sloppy turnovers in the backcourt, errant passes, and it, it, it was reminiscent. Or, you know, it, it, there were a lot of similarities with what happened in, in, in the Davidson game. Uh, the, the difference in that Davidson game is you had Chris Wright playing his fourth game since returning, fourth game, fifth game since returning from injury, trying to figure out his place on the roster and trying to be that guy who just creates when the offense breaks down and he was learning on the court. And it's, it's the, the result has nothing to do with that sort of his learning process. It's just, uh, that's the only thing that sort of differentiates, I think parts of that game with what we saw in the first half against West Virginia. Yeah, I was, I was going to, I was going to try to tie this up in a, in a bow and say that, like, unfortunately, part of the legacy of this game is that Georgetown's luck ultimately runs out this year in, in the tournament against Davidson. These teams do play one more time. Um, I remember virtually nothing about the Big East tournament semifinal. We won by 17. Um, was not particularly competitive. Roy had a much better game in that game. Um, it turns out fairly well for West Virginia. Um, they end up with a seven seed uh, in the tournament. They uh, have a nice second-round win over Duke at the Verizon Center. I actually remember listening to that game on the radio while I was driving down to Raleigh the day before the Davidson game. Uh, West Virginia loses in overtime to Xavier in the Sweet 16, but I mean, I think it's worked out pretty well for them under Huggins. Um, do you feel like we missed something with not having West Virginia around in the Big East longer? I feel like this was a rivalry that was just getting really, really good by like 2010, and then it was kind of gone. I mean, I, I miss West Virginia on the schedule just because I miss the, the rivalry and the history of these matchups, and I love to hate West Virginia. 
I mean, but I have to say, especially in the last four years of, of JT3's reign, there were plenty of West Virginia-like teams that just beat us up relentlessly. So having to face Xavier, for example, and uh, you know the you know the, the Providence teams under Ed Cooley and the way Seton Hall started playing, we don't need another. We didn't need another one of those teams on our schedule year in and and year out. So I don't, I don't, I don't mind it. And 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 also just just to note on that when we face them in the Big East tournament, what was remarkable there is remember in the quarterfinals it's Chris Wright's first game back, we just completely outclassed Villanova and hit a ton of three pointers, and it was just one of those games where you're like, wow, if we're hitting our outside shots and we have Chris Wright available to come into the game, we really have a chance to go to the Final Four despite all of our sort of uh, warts. Uh, warts and right uh, throughout the season and then in the semifinals against West Virginia it was Hibbert all day and all night punishing a team in the paint and so the combination of how we played in the quarters on the perimeter and how we played in the semis in the paint you put it all together and heading into that final against Pittsburgh you're like we're looking at a team that might win it all this year so that West Virginia game was memorable just at how you know uh how well Roy played. I think actually when we beat West Virginia 70 to 52 or something like that, when we beat them in the semis, it was like Roy had his post-game comment, which was like, uh, you know, be afraid, be afraid or like something like that. I mean, Roy was like getting his, he was really getting into it and it was exciting to see because he was, he really didn't bring much to the table in this game. Spoiler alert, he didn't bring much to the table in his next two games after that big tournament semifinal either. Well, um, I, don't, those, I don't think he was allowed to play in the Davidson game. I'm going to take that <laughs> grave. Those first two games with Biggie's tournament, I agree. It was, you know, we heard about it can be Princeton on steroids for so long, and then you got Chris and Austin out there together, and that's kind of what it looked like those first two days of the Biggie's tournament, and then it just, we know what happened after that. Yeah. You guys. <laughs> I want to say this too. Um, you said that you know they they beat Duke, which was a big win. You know Belmont got screwed in that in that first game. I Belmont. don't disagree. <laughs> I do not disagree. I actually, you just reminded me of that, but I remember that game, and I you are correct. And it's it was the first, or I'm sorry, and obviously as we know on this podcast, that's who Georgetown had played the previous year, and their two firsts was 15, and Jesse Sapp came to play that day as well. Um, yeah, yeah, no. Um, for me, John, just, sounds like just you know were that, just know that Belmont walked so that Lehigh and Mercer could run. That's true. You were at that game. It sounds like you were at the Big East tournament. I decided based on. You know, and I would love for it to happen again, based on what Georgetown put me through as far as travel wise in 2007, that I was going to go ahead and just sit the Big East tournament out because I had a lot more trips coming and Eastern Raleigh was it. But I was it's something I'll probably never do again if I have the option to kind of, you know, pick and choose what I'm going to go to. You always want to go to the first because the second might not be coming. And I was already thinking ahead to how are these next couple of weekends going to look? Do I really need to go to New York? So that's kind of the way I was going with that postseason. Couple, uh, couple things before I got to get out of here, but a couple things before I go. Um, little fun facts here. 
Um, I learned today, so we're recording this on the actual anniversary of yeah. the West Virginia game. So it's the 26th of January tonight. Turns out it's also uh, the anniversary of a few years later, if you live in the D.C. area, um, the snowstorm that was known as Carmageddon. Um, it was like an afternoon snowstorm that, like, because of the way the offices let out, caused this humongous, epic traffic jam. People were, like, dealing with, like, eight, hour, eight nine-hour commutes home. It was on the night of a Georgetown St. John's game. Yes. What's up? No, I was just saying St. John's, and I remember driving home. Oh. I got down there early, and on 395, getting back to Fairfax, just a million cars yeah. stuck. I have a truck, so it yeah. was perfect. Yep, yep. So that's actually the anniversary of that game, too. I know you would be upset with me if I did not tell you what the number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 was this week <laughs> when the game was played. It was Low by Flo Rida and T-Pain. Um, this is also the season. I, I maintain that there is a curse on Georgetown's basketball program that started at Midnight Madness before this season. This is the Midnight Madness that uh, when the song Cranked At by Soldier Boy was popular and that stupid dance was popular. And Jerry Rice the one that there. Jerry Rice came to and did the stupid, like, you know, Soldier Boy dance or whatever, and they played that song throughout the season. It is not a coincidence to me that Georgetown has not made it past this first weekend of the tournament since that song was popular. And every time I hear that stupid song, to this day, and they still play it at games sometimes. Drives me bonkers. <laughs> so I consider this the curse of Soldier Boy that has inflicted the Georgetown program and will not deliver Georgetown back to prominence until we expunge this. So if last week the mission was figure out if John Ossoff was at the Duke game, this mission this week is bring me the head of Soldier Boy. Anyway, I actually think that was the, probably the, the last time we had a genuinely exciting Midnight Madness is when that song played and Jerry Rice emerged from the crowd and started dancing along with Patrick Ewing Jr. If we ever do the Weird Georgetown podcast, we're going to talk about the Midnight Madness where the guy shot the toilet. So you are wrong. <laughs> all right. I'm going to get out of here, guys. Enjoy your evenings. Thanks a lot for having me on. I'll see you all soon. Now, see that, now, that, he's, now that he's gone, I'll say that it – Having Jerry Rice and listening to Crank That was much better than any Bubba Sparks appearance back in my day. I feel like, was it when Wale? Was Wale there, or did they just use a Wale song? He was there one of those years. That was, I don't know, maybe 2011-ish. Yeah. That's kind of when I thought that was pretty cool. I think there was an Eshrick Midnight Madness that involved getting a glow-in-the-dark t-shirt that I really wanted and I never got. It wasn't a glow-in-the-dark t-shirt. It was just, it was a t-shirt and then they, they gave out like the the glow bands, the necklaces. I thought there was a t-shirt that had like whatever that writing is to where if it's, you know, if it's night, it'll kind of reflect something. Oh. I could be I wrong. Know. Maybe I'll just ask Craig. We have a, we talk all the time. Um, did did you talk about kind of the, the leg the legacy of this game and what it meant sort of going forward because i mean to, to me the the clear and obvious thing that jumps out is you know here we see Deshaun butler getting blocked improbably improbably on a on a fluky not a fluky play but on a fluky shot um you you gotta fast forward uh a couple of years later to Deshaun in the biggest tournament 
taking another fluky shot that happens to go in at the end and having West yeah. Virginia beat us in, in the biggest tournament. Um, but also like, you know, so the, the trajectory of his career, I mean, he goes from being a role player to being the guy and ends up in the final four and eventually tearing his ACL. But, you know, also for guys like Austin Freeman, who was a bit player in this game. And then he had a lot of, you know, a, a lot of interesting West Virginia moments that, uh, he and uh, culminating, I think, in three years later when he was when he was a senior, he misses the final game in Morgantown because it's right after he learns that he he has diabetes, and then he comes back to face West Virginia in that Big East final and hits a couple of big threes, uh, which was exciting for us to see. So a lot that, of that com- comes full circle a couple years later. Oh man, that game in Morgantown when Austin, I think he was there and went home, I think, because he had a fever. I think it was against Notre Dame at home where he warmed up and said he couldn't go. That was a Saturday. I think it was a Monday or Tuesday in Morgantown, and he ended up not playing. That was a that was one of those brutal, brutal games. Uh, he played, oh, but he played, play in that, no, he played in that Notre Dame game. I mean, he oh, played he in the played? Notre Dame game, and like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. With, with the exception. And that was – I was at that game. It was – yeah, I mean, you know, we given our history with Notre Dame and given where that game was in the season, we we needed it. We lost yeah. something like seventy to sixty four. That was like the slow burn offense. Um, yeah. Probably another season in which Mike Bray won Coach of the Year, improbably. But Freeman played in that game and missed everything, and everybody was wondering why he was so sluggish, with the exception of like a little gimme layup, and then and then we find out what the deal is, and then he misses that game the following week at West Virginia. Okay. Yeah, I have a different. They, they wore those hideous silver and gold uniforms, didn't they? They're white and gold at yeah. home. Yeah. So anyway, so this 2008 season, I had a new, um, a new neighbor in my season ticket. I'd had season tickets now. I think for at this point, I think I'd had it for this is JT 3s fourth year. Five, six. Yeah, so this is my fifth year in the same seat. I had a new seatmate, and I think she thought I was the smartest person in the world. The first week of the season, I looked at the schedule, and I predicted every win and loss in the regular season. wasn't that complicated. They were going to win almost all their games, but I happened to pick out the games that they lost. So she kept coming back to me as, hey, you know, what, what's this season? I'm like, no, it's, it's a lot harder to do that, okay? This was a Final <laughs> Four team and blah, blah, blah. My question to you, to both of you guys, we'll start with Nolan, is, how you know? How different do you think that season goes if Chris Wright plays the entire season? I mean, you can't do much better regular season because you only lose four games and you lost one of them with him. Yeah, I, I guess I would ask, does it go better? I, I don't know. Um, yeah. You add that element of a guy who wants minutes, wants shots, wants to run the team. Um, somebody's the odd man out there. I mean, which probably you would think would just be Rivers anyway, but then you lose kind of the guy who turned into your defensive stopper at times. Um, we were talking about guys who, you know, made key plays throughout that season. If you just go back to the game before that Syracuse game, he's Flynn, the one who yeah. locked down Johnny Flynn. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know. It was almost – I mean, he would have liked to have a talent like Chris out there, but for that team, he might have just been better off with, with what you had. Yeah, that's a really hard question. I, I do think there would have 
there there would have been more personality conflicts potentially. It's difficult to get so many guys minutes. I think we would have lost more games during the regular season, but might have had might have figured out a way to gel and do better in the tournament. I think we just we didn't have enough time for Chris Wright to get sort of incorporated into the roster and figure out how how to fit him in. Uh, and that was unfortunate, uh, especially during that Davidson game. Um, and that's, that's not a knock on Chris at all. It's just it would have been better to see how this team could come together. Yeah, I, I remember, and I love Chris Wright as a player, and he's been cool. He's been on the podcast, and I've traded texts with him and stuff. So I'm not anti-Chris Wright at all. But I do remember when he came back at the end of the season, just being concerned about team chemistry because, like we just talked about, two of the three biggest tournament games they played were just things of beauty. And we all know in sports, it's just hard. Everybody wants to play. And if you're a talent like him, you can't you can't not play him. Um, yeah, it's hard to say. I think I think you guys are both right. I think that the season probably doesn't go as smooth as it did. But then you would have had you would have had a different kind of team, and you would have had more options in the postseason, and potentially been more dangerous and different ways to win. Obviously, one of the fallouts of this, you know, I thought both the guys that transferred, I thought it was weird because when Macklin came back for his sophomore year, you know that unless he was being told that he was going to be more of a stretch four and all that kind of stuff, you knew that you were going to sit behind Hibbert, and he did. And then Hibbert graduated, Mm -hmm. and he still left. Obviously, Greg Monroe is coming, but Greg Monroe can sort of play a little bit further from the basket. And then for Rivers, you know, yes, Chris Wright's there, but John Wallace is leaving, so all those minutes are available. And kind of like one of the problems USA Basketball had forever, not forever, but for a while, was that they were taking all-star teams instead of teams that kind of like had roles, which is how we know teams are better and jeremiah rivers was that guy like on two really good georgetown teams he played a ton despite being limited offensively but on that group he had a role and i those those obviously you don't know the actual personal stuff going on but just i was just so surprised that those guys left based on they were going to have different roles and you know got you know wallace graduated and hibbert graduated uh, in looking back at it, I, I actually think I, I think a lot of the a lot of the lineup failure when I look back at this this season and the following season was the, the mismatched pieces. It was I, I never liked having Dewan Summers at the four. I always thought Dewan should have just stayed at the three. Um, and I, so if I if we could go back, I I think I would have preferred to have. Ewing at the four, uh, and and Summers at the three, and then you you sort of figure it out between Sapp and Freeman. Maybe Sapp's minutes go down a little bit with when when Freeman's there, and uh, and then you figure out a way to work in Rivers for defensive purposes when you take Wallace out of the game and you sub in Macklin for Hibbert. But I, we just for reasons we discussed at the outset, it, I, I think Ewing was arguably the best bat passer on the team and the guy who could come closest to playing the point forward role. I think Macklin was probably told, you know, he'll get more minutes as he figures out, uh, figures out the offense. But for, for Macklin, it never really 
I mean, he he showed some flashes, but he was much more of a bruiser, a guy who can play in the paint, and did a hell of a hell of a job doing that when he was on Florida after he transferred. Yeah, he was just a different a different type of player. But I think having Ewing at the four, I think that lineup. If we saw something like Wallace Freeman, uh, Summers, Ewing, Hibbert would have been ideal. Uh, and at times we could sort of go small and put, you know, small small for that team, which is pair Ewing with Macklin or something like that. Uh, but I, I think adjustments like that would have been interesting to see. Nolan, do you have a take on that? Yeah, it, it felt like JT3, he either had to make the decision that he was going to play big with that type of group or go small, which for the most part he opted to do, inserting Austin there. And it's it's, it's a tough trade-off because you want Austin's shooting. But like how he said, the passing of Ewing, he was your best passer on that team maybe. So it's I think all year that was a tough a tough thing to juggle the lineups with that team. Macklin, for me, was disappointing because if you're looking at a player that Greg Monroe really could have enhanced, I think it's probably playing next to him. Yeah. Um, which Greg, unfortunately, never really had. Julian was really good um, 2010 season, but 2009, Dewan was stuck playing power forward, and Greg didn't really have anybody up front with him. So I think for me, that that was kind of the missing link on the 2009 team. And then, you know, if he stays, you you have him for a senior year with Greg. And that, I just think those two really would have complemented each other nicely. Well, I, yeah, I think you're right. And and again, it's it, we, we were forced to have DeLon playing out of position at the four when Macklin would have been ideal, especially with Greg playing the point forward role. I mean, Macklin wanted to be the guy receiving catches in the paint and doing the dirty work and didn't feel like he could get that at, at Georgetown to the extent they wanted to keep him on the perimeter. But with, with Hibbert, with Hibbert gone, with Ewing gone, Macklin would have been perfect in the four and would have been on the receiving end of those passes from Monroe and others. And then Summers would have been more naturally in that three spot with, with Wright and Freeman not competing for minutes at the top of the backcourt. And that, that starting five is, not missing the tournament. It's not. And actually, I don't know how YouTube does its stuff. Maybe it's the same for everyone, or maybe it's based off of other videos that you've watched. But I, I hit a button by mistake while I was watching this game, and it, it fast-forwarded to the game from the next year. And obviously, we know 2009 wasn't a very good season, even though they had some good wins. You know, they were they were – when that – the next game started Georgetown was 14th in the country and it's just crazy to think that the way that season went and, you know, even the win at the end of the year against Villanova, but they were expected to be good, even with the departures, the addition of Monroe and that season is crazy. I mean, if we do a rewind from that season, if we did like, let's say we did the UConn game in the beginning of conference mm-hmm. play. I mean, I thought, I thought they were a final four team, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> that for me the turning point in all that I, it was that row game at Seton Hall where up until that point I was like okay they're going to figure it out but then when they went to Seton Hall and lost to it must have still been Bobby Gonzalez at that point then it was just like 
something's wrong here, and it, it just really went off the rails. It's, I mean, look, it, it, it was defense, right? It was, mm-hmm. we, we lost, we lost Ewing, Macklin, Rivers, and Hibbert. And we were relying on guys who weren't naturally good defenders and really young guys. Um, and I, I, Sap, Sap was a, a decent enough defender, but especially our interior defense, we lost a lot of that. And, there was a lot of just Roy being Roy Hibbert, this massive presence in yeah. the paint that you couldn't replicate with any single guy. Uh, but it, it was our defense that let us down and finding ways to compensate for the incredible defensive efforts we had the previous two seasons is what really killed us. I think for me in that season, it was close to what Nolan just said. That was obviously, so I'm, I'm looking at the, that run of games they had a God, they had a five game losing streak. That's just crazy. They got right against Rutgers at home, and then they had Syracuse. Or I'm sorry, then they had Cincinnati at home. They lost in overtime to Cincinnati. Cincinnati, you know, wasn't that great that season, and they hadn't been good since they joined the league. They lost that game. I was like, and they were up big in that game too. By the way, and I remember being like, oh my God, like they might miss the tournament. Then they went to Syracuse. They lost in overtime. It was almost it got to the. It was ninety eight, ninety four. Yeah, that that game at Syracuse just haunts me. I I saw Austin Freeman later after like after that game and before that was a that was a sad that was actually Valentine's Day Saturday. Then they came or they I guess they came home before they went to USF or maybe it might not have been before the next game. But anyway, I saw him at Tyson's Corner um, at the movies. Twice I'd bumped into Austin Freeman once uh, at a Nats game while he was in college and then there. And I was like, hey, what were you? And I think it was maybe Harris or what were you guys jawing about on the free throw line? And he just kind of like smiled and, you know, was like, oh, you're a Georgetown fan. And I remember being like, hey, you guys are going to turn around, right? And he was like, yeah, for sure. And I'm like, okay. And I started feeling better about it. And it just, <laughs> it just never, never quite happened. But that team was talented. And when you look at, how excited everyone is for next year. And I don't want to ruin that for anybody, but just look at the kind of talent that was on that team. And it's not just talent. Like it has to like fit together the right way and be coached the right way. Um, So this is always the group that I look at as being really talented on the college level and not working out. And I always kind of like, well, let me see what it looks like before, before we say it's going to be a big success because this team had me fooled even though they're really talented. Um, I guess we don't need to completely analyze the 2009 Georgetown Hoyas. Um, Howie, have you picked the game for next time? I have not. I'll do a little bit of digging. <laughs> um, hey, real quick. What do you guys think about JT3 to Fordham? That was the thing, <laughs> Howie, that I was trying to, I was trying to remember. I feel like it would be great. That, is that a rumor? Uh, it's something that I've decided that I think should happen. Fordham's coach <laughs> got fired today. I mean, I I love JT3, and I hope he coaches again. And I don't care where it is, as long as it's not at Syracuse or Notre Dame. <laughs> no, Nolan? I I might throw out a better one for him. It, I mean, what are the odds that Mason job opens this year? Um, 
I think he's got one more year. Okay. And I don't think Mason, like most places, are in the business of paying two coaches. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that is something that in the foreseeable future, I, I it sounded like Fordham was going to maybe open up their pocketbook a little bit. And even though Mason's a big state school, one of the bigger state schools that doesn't have any football, so they should be able to pay. I don't think that they're paying very well for the A10. And yeah. when JT three was rumored for the GW job, you know he, the basketball budget at GW was less than like for the whole operation was less than what he had been paid at Georgetown. And obviously, he's probably going to take a pay cut next time he coaches if that ever happens. I hope it does as well. But uh, it sounded like Fordham offering about a million or so seems like that might be enough. It, it just seems like you know it's it's close to New York all that stuff. But I do agree with you that being local is a big deal. Cause basically JT three has only been to college and then he came back home. Right. So, so if you're going to throw, throw this off the wall idea out there, let me just suggest something else. Now that you mentioned Fordham. So one of, one of Fordham's more famous alums uh, from the basketball program is, is Mike Rice. So I, I, if I'm, if I'm being honest, I mean, Fordham should probably give Mike Rice a serious look. Um, He's in somebody's staff. He, um, I he he's been uh, on the high school side and like uh, yeah. doing a lot of AAU stuff and has a lot of great connections. I, I was actually, I mean, I didn't know about this Fordham news. I was actually going to say I would love it if Georgetown considered hiring Mike Rice as an assistant um, for for two huge reasons. One, he's a heck of a defensive coach, and two, he has incredible connections to all of these phenomenal high school recruits uh, on, on the East coast. Um, and that would, I mean, both of those things would help us tremendously. Um, I think he's done a lot to kind of rehabilitate uh, everything that happened and from several years ago, but especially for him, maybe Fordham will give him a look. I think he needs to get, you know, some team may want to bring him on as an assistant before hiring him as a head coach, but given his ties to Fordham, that wouldn't, surprise me he's a really good coach is fordham fordham's not a state school right it's it's private no no private school yeah yeah i it just i that, i sort of have jt3 in that in that mold right like it's there, i think there's certain places and they've been just so bad for so long that he's not I going to fordham jt3 is not going to fordham I mean, how long do you think he wants to just do like, you know, council esports players for the Wizards monumental whatever operation he's doing now? I mean, I think he should coach again. So he should have a coaching job. Someone with his resume, it's if he wants a job, he should be able to get one. I don't know. I think JT3's next step is probably going to be to be an NBA assistant. NBA. And see, yeah. See what he can do at that level. I don't really see him going back to the college game um, unless he wanted to kind of go back to Princeton at, at some point, but I bet he ends up somewhere in the NBA. Well, I know no one's listening anymore, so I'll say this without any repercussions because it's been so long. I love this podcast, but I know it's been long. I mean, you know, if the Georgetown job opened up and you had to come up with a list of five people, he's on it. I mean, why don't we just run it back with JT3 and Craig Escherich? I mean, I'm joking, but not really. I mean, we, look, I mean, everyone talks about DePaul. Like, Dave Leto went back there. 
You, you, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, like, given the restrictions of who Georgetown is and like what that list might look like, if something happened where Ewing got the Knicks job or not, that's a bad example now because they're actually going the right direction, but you know what I mean? JT3's I, on you know, it. I, I, the, 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 the first person I would want to hire, not necessarily as a head coach, but as an assistant coach. And I, I say this in all sincerity is Patrick Ewing jr. I would oh. love for him to be able to actually recruit guys. I would love to see him on the bench and, he would make a great addition to any JT3 and Escher coach team. And why not include Patrick <laughs> Ewing too? I mean, why don't we just have a staff of all of our recent head coaches with Patrick Ewing Jr. and throw Kevin Braswell there too because he's got a lot of local connections. With kids. <laughs> Look, I know that this has gotten out of, con- out of hand, but if you have to come up with five people, JT3 and Patrick Ewing, I was, I was just about to say Patrick Ewing Jr. is on that list as well. Like, it's, it's, <laughs> it is. I mean, I again, this is a thing that I, I've mentioned before that I actually thought when Craig Escherich was fired, the name that I thought might be the best to come to Georgetown to be the head coach before JT3 was announced, and I, I'm not joking, was Mike Fratello. <laughs> <laughs> the czar? You wanted the czar? So let's, you know, let's, let's run it back. Let's run it back with the czar. Um. I don't know. Give me Jeff Van Gundy. They certainly Never would be able to defend, I'll tell you that. Well, I'm glad that it ended this way. I really enjoy those kind of hypotheticals. People do go home sometimes. It happens. But, uh, yeah. I think we need to end this immediately. <laughs> <laughs> I might just cut the whole last part out. Leave it all in. You're going you're gonna to give hope to a lot of guys out there, especially Mike Rice getting a lot of pub. Hey, real quick, do you guys think Georgetown's going to play on Saturday? No. I don't think so either. Uh, what, what was the shutdown date? I don't remember now. It'll Have be two weeks, two weeks on the tomorrow, okay. which, assuming whenever I get this up, it should be, well, I hopefully get it up later tonight. Tomorrow should be the day that we find something out. That'll be the 14 days. Ewing hasn't we hasn't spoken to anyone that I'm aware of, at least on the record, which I was a little disappointed about because I've seen other programs be on pause and do that. So I think we should know something tomorrow. I don't think they well, play. Uh, if they do, it's it might not be pretty because Providence is not that Providence is great, but they're in at least a rhythm of playing games where you're gonna be thrown out there with two or three days of practice. I'm just totally focused on Jamarco and Javon getting to a thousand points. That's it. That's all. Marco is the fourth leading scorer in the conference. Fifth leading scorer in the conference. Javon. I'm sorry, not Jamarco. Javon. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just focused on that. Um, all right. We will be back hopefully next week with maybe some game stuff, but if not, NY is going to find us a new game to talk about. And maybe it'll be game that is outside of this little incredible era of, what we call the Jeff Green, Roy Hibbert Hoyas. So maybe we'll take it back even further or come up with something more recent. You can find him at Nationwide Nolan. That's Nolan. And why we have not convinced to get on Twitter yet. I'm at Bobby Bancroft. We'll see you soon. Thanks, guys.